There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change. Yes, hello Mark, hello listeners. Must confess to being a bit excited today. Steady on, Rich. What, what, what are you so excited about? <laughs> That's all right, I'm back in control, Mark. I'm excited because we're embarking on new content territory this week. Oh, we are? Yeah, we're talking biodynamic methods of farming and gardening in my chat with Australian second generation biodynamic farmer Mark Rathbone. And we're going where few interviews have gone before, at least not on Climactic. We're exploring these methods as a way for farmers, gardeners, and yeah, even regular folks like us to mitigate against the effects of climate change. As you'll hear, Mark, it all comes back to care and replenishment of the soil. Biodynamics ties in nicely to the concept of a circular economy, which was introduced to us here on Climactic in your interview with Doug Holmes. But wait, listeners, that's not all in this week's episode. Yes, and I'm really looking forward to this. Following the interview, you'll be explaining to us the fantastic work you've been putting in on organising the Climactic Melbourne University Challenge. Yeah, and I'm so excited about how it's going, and you can you can hear my excitement. <laughs> We're getting some fantastic results. We're very happy with the progress so far, and I just want to say a quick thanks to the Graduate Agricultural and Food Studies team at the University of Melbourne, that's Manga, Sigonth, and Anissa, for all their help in organizing this event. You'll hear a lot more about it after the interview, but without further delay, here's Rich chatting with Northern Victorian biodynamic farmer Mark Rathbone. And welcome to Mark Rathbone. Thanks, Rich. Uh, happy to be here. Mark, I wonder if you could introduce yourself and talk a little about what you do on your biodynamic farm in northern Victoria. My business is named Save Our Soil, and I've started that business in 1996. Although I've been involved with biodynamics uh, all my life, my father started biodynamics on his dairy farm in 1965 when I was about two years old. Mm-hmm. So it's been something that I've Grown up with, I'm a fourth generation farmer, but one of the few second generation biodynamic farmers. So I learned how to do biodynamics on the dairy farm. And about 20 years ago, I started mucking around with veggies. And then about 10 years ago, dad retired from the dairy farm. Mm-hmm. And I changed from dairy farming to basically vegetable farming because of drought situations and things like that. We felt that water was going to be an issue in the future and yes. that the best use of water was uh, vegetable farming. So we did that. Um, so I've been doing that for about seven years full time and we basically grow seasonal vegetables for the Melbourne community, which is the capital city in our state, Victoria. Mm-hmm. And yep. we go down there every Saturday uh, taking uh, the freshest seasonal vegetables that we usually picked on uh, Thursday or Friday, and we go to a Saturday market uh, in the centre of Melbourne, usually places like 
St Kilda, Collingwood, Port Melbourne, and mm-hmm. uh, Abbotsford Convent in the middle of Melbourne. So that's our market every Saturday. That, those are farmers' markets, right? They are, yeah. Yeah. So I'm one of the few biodynamic farmers that does only farmers' markets. So we used to do a bit of wholesale, but we found that usually there was competition from the organic sector. Usually we would grow cherry tomatoes. Uh, we'd get good prices for the start. Then the Queensland ones would come down, and our price or the the amount we were getting for our tomatoes would mm-hmm. drop below cost. So yep. we decided that we wanted to create our own direct sales, and we've been doing so ever since. So now I can basically ask what I feel the produce is worth, and having good quality BD and a good flavour, I can sort of ask premium prices. I wonder if you could just give us a quick explanation of biodynamic farming and how it differs from, say, organic farming, organic gardening? Okay. Well, we're pretty much the same as far as taking out the whole chemical things is concerned. Organics is chemical-free. My father was initially a conventional farmer, so we would put on our superphosphate, we'd put on nitrogen fertiliser, we would dose our cows with drenches and dips and that kind of thing. So we used chemicals widespread over the farm soil and also of the animals. Then we had a stint where we went organic. It was only a brief stint, but we would bring in things like a lot of compost and a lot of sort of animal manures and also some minerals. So we still brought things into the gate and put them onto the soil, but they were not chemical. So we would dose our cows with herbs and things like that. Uh, Then we went biodynamic. Basically what we do there is bring in biology, which is uh, made from a cow horn in a cow manure and a cow horn which i'll explain later perhaps mm-hmm. and we basically grow cover crops yep put our microbes on the soil dig all the uh, cover crops in and then the microbes break that all down and do the composting in the soil so we no longer have to bring in a lot of material and add it to the soil we just make basically make the uh, fertility on the farm so it's more a closed unit type farming system okay and how long did it take your family's farm to, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but uh, repair itself from a, a traditional chemical-laden farm to a biodynamic one? It probably took about two to five years, I guess, to mm-hmm. get good structure back. What happened was we had cows and sheep just wander uh, where they wanted to initially, and they kept the um, grass really short, and as a result of that, trampled pretty heavily on the soil and the excess fertilizers made the the soil go really hard in order to uh, fix that we had to rip the soil and uh, put on our microbes and things like that and then they would go into the soil create airways and pathways and then they would uh, basically form a structure through the methodology it took us about two to five years it always develops once you once you go there, it improves every year, put it that way. Yep, okay. Mark, I'm interested to learn a little bit more about the Biodynamic 500 preparation. Could you explain that to me? Sure. There's various methods within the Biodynamics. 500 is not the only one, but we'll, we'll start there. The main thing we're trying to do is create in an environment within the soil in order for the microbes to, to do their work. That would include deep ripping, getting air in the soil. Uh, it also means harrowing, which is um, basically 
spreading our manures very thinly so that the microbes can eat it. It's growing our clock crops long on the top and then digging them in. We have also correct cultivation methods mm-hmm. so that we don't, you know, rotary hoe the soil too much. We use tines that are wide apart so we don't kill our fungi. And then we also add our microbes to the soil. Okay. Prepared 500 is the main one. 500 is cow manure placed in a cow horn over the winter period. Over that time, the manure changes from a smelly substance to a rich humusy type material. I don't know if you've ever smelt. Have you ever had a really good compost heap and you've pulled it up and it doesn't smell at all? It looks all buttery and jelly-like and nice. Um, have you ever had that? I do know a few people that are very keen organic gardeners and uh, they know exactly how to prepare their compost. It's something I, I was very jealous of, Mark, actually. I could never yeah, do that's it. Right. But, yeah, I know what you mean. The structure is absolutely – and it, it, it looks good enough to eat almost, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks a bit like chocolate cake in some respects. Yes, and it doesn't yes. smell at all. Well, that's how the 500 comes out. Now, what we do is we store that in a clay jar, which is allowed to get air in it. Otherwise, the microbes will die if you don't let them have air. Yep. And always so to keep them moist. And then we we can store them for as long as we like, basically. Then in um, springtime and autumn time, when the soil is moist and warm, we take about an ounce and a quarter per acre and put it into a stirring machine. Yep. And, and the water's at about 37 degrees Celsius, and uh, we put the microbes in there, and we do about we do about eight acres at a time. We stir it for an hour, and it's through a series of vortexes, which is like aerates the whole liquid. So the microbes move through the whole liquid. They come out of the 500, and they, so we get a big tub of microbes. Then within an hour, we put them into a spray tank, and we spray them out in the soil in big droplets. So our machines put them out in rather large droplets so that when they hit plants and things, mm. they, ro- they roll down to the bottom of the plant and hit the soil. So okay. if you can imagine that droplet having maybe hundreds of thousands of microbes in it yes. and spread every inch, it's like a, an inoculant for the soil right. or it's like a probiotic. So we're not, we're not spreading out minerals or any substances we're spreading out microbes to do a composting action within the soil. So all those old root systems that are there from the grass or the old trashy matter or the old manure starts to be composted in the soil. So we don't have to worry about making compost heaps, although we do do that. Uh, but you can get away f- without making compost because it's all happening in the soil provided we create the right conditions. And can stock actually pick out the uh, biodynamic grass. The reason I ask, Mark, is that I spoke to uh, Tammy Kurtz, Lyndon Lamb here in Oberon in the Central West, or I think mm-hmm. you know very well. And she, t- she told me yeah. this intriguing story of how she got into biodynamics or actually how her family got into biodynamic farming. I think it was her mum got some Preparation 500 and just as a sample, just put it on a small patch just near where their house was, just uh, the farmhouse, and it was her dad who later on, you know, six months later, noticed that all stock were heading towards the biodynamic prepared area and the sort of being the observant farmer twigged, well, this has obviously got something to it. And that started him off. I'm just wondering, is that true? Do, uh, do stock understand, if that's the right word, which is the more healthy? Well, a similar thing happened to us. I actually, I've heard um, Tammy's mm. story too. My father started by spraying, he was a bit sceptical. I mean, 
when someone comes along and says, you know, this microbes will do all the work for you and you don't have to add anything, it's a bit hard to understand initially. Yep. So my father was a bit sceptical at the start, as you would be. He sprayed half the farm with 500 and the other half he didn't. And after a few months of doing this, uh, or a few months after the application, he grazed off the grass on the biodynamic side of the mm-hmm. farm, and then he put the cows back on to the conventional side of the farm. Now, the conventional side of the farm did grow more grass. It was obviously longer and bigger. And uh, he put them back on this long grass, and anyway, they went back to the other side of the farm and started eating on the short grass again. Dad said, oh, that's ridiculous. And then, he, So he put him back out, tied the gate up with just a rope. He was a bit slack. Yes. And the cows actually went back an hour later, knocked down the, the, the middle gate. We had, two, we had this gate in the middle of the farm and went back to the short grass again. So that was enough for him to think, well, look, there's something in this. I'm not too sure what, but if the cows say they like the grass, then there must be something in it. And he noticed too that the cows milked just as well on the BD grass, which was smaller, and then they, as they did on their conventional grasses at the same time. So it was an interesting observation. That was enough for Dad to go to biodynamics because the cows sort of signaled to him that the grass was of higher quality. That's fascinating that uh, they can uh, sense that. That's the second story. It really, it really amazes me. Mark, I just wonder if I could just go back to a point you made earlier about water availability. I spoke to Councillor John Fry part of Climactic uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about water availability becoming scarcer and scarcer out here in the central west of New South Wales. I'm wondering, firstly, does this mean a shift, a definite shift in the climate to you? And does biodynamics hold the, the secret to the future for farmers, do you think? The water availability has been diminished up here recently we had 10 years of drought right up to 2011 Mm. so the last uh, six or seven years has been not wet we had one wet year out of that but i have a swamp in the bottom of my property and it hasn't been full for 20 more years so from that i'm gauging that when I was a kid, it was always full. So yes. from that evidence, I'm suggesting maybe the climate has changed. And a lot of our water now from Lake Yildon and places like that has to go down the Murray just to keep it flowing well. Mm-hmm. So some of the farmers have had their allocations cut back. So it is, yeah, it is affecting this area. Now, as far as um, biodynamics helping that is concerned, when we first started uh, farming, our root systems only went down four inches and after about 25 years of farming we had a um, university student who came and dug up our soil and we had soil carbon and also root systems go down four feet wow so our watering pattern went from once every seven days yes to once every 30 so uh you can see there that there's obvious some obvious yes watering benefits there now i don't have any figures on whether we, how much water we saved or whether there was a water saving there because we had a big sponge to water. Instead of watering four inches, we were watering four feet. So we did notice mm. that, that, that on that 30th day when we watered, we put out a, a, a bit more water than we used to. But I don't know the figures on that to be, to be precise. Okay, okay. Now, as far as climate change is concerned, uh, if you can 
visualize four inches of root systems versus four feet. Yes. Now, all those root systems in that four feet would be carbon, and that's carbon that's come out of the atmosphere, produced by the plants and sent down into the root systems. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of guessing there might be five to ten times as much carbon in our soil as there was before. And I was re reading a thing by Alex Podolinsky, who started Biodynamics in 1960, or, well, helped out in 1965, and he talks about some biodynamic soils going from about 1% carbon to about 10% carbon in just a few short years. Yes. So that means an overall increase from 10 tonnes of uh, carbon per acre to about 500 tonnes of carbon per acre captured in that time, in that four-year four, um, time frame. Now, that doesn't happen on all biodynamic soils. You can't really say that because you've got dry, you've got wet, you've got sandy soils, you've got clay soils, and different things happen with different farmers, but that's some of the, the better results that biodynamics has achieved. Now, if we can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and stop these droughts and these flooding rains and things like that, then I think that's that's a real big benefit. That, that's incredible figures uh, there, Mark. Uh, even if you say it doesn't happen in all of them, that's an incredible pointer to the future. Hmm. I just wonder if you could just give us a quick discussion. Uh, this is for people like myself who are interested in biodynamics, want to know more. You do have a a website, biosoil.net.au. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what do you aim to achieve with that? Yeah, well, I think um, we were uh, experiencing climate change firsthand. Like when we were doing the dairy farming, uh, we had from 2000 to 2010 where we had hardly any water and we were basically paying for, for really expensive biodynamic feed to keep the cows alive. Yet the supermarkets were still trying to sell dollar milk on the shelves mm. and I felt that that was unfair that they didn't even try to raise it a bit to try and help us out. Yeah. So I realised that really it was up to us to take matters into our own hands and that's when I changed to vegetable farming. But the, the fact remains is it doesn't matter how good of farmers we are, if the climate changes, none of us can grow food, whether you be conventional, organic, permaculture or biodynamic. Mm. So the big thing is for enough of us to grab some of that carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil. Because uh, I was talking to your mate John, mm. and he says that you know that's his new mantra. Yes, and I think that's a really great idea, and and it's part of the reason why I built a website. I've been doing talks in universities and and also locally about biodynamics and how we can sequester carbon in the soil, but I was only getting twenty, thirty people involved at each time. Yep. And I thought, I really need to go more global on this issue. So I got together with um, a guy from Biodynamic Growing Magazine and we put some of the stories about our farmers uh, who have been farming for the last 50 years and, and less and put their stories up on a website just so you can see what they've been doing. Okay. And um, I feel stories are a really good way for people to get involved without – we're not trying to sell you anything. We're not trying to get – there's no – it's all free information. But I thought it would be a great way for people to have a little look without being bothered by anybody or being, you know, a little bit embarrassed or whatever. It's at www.biosoil.net.au. And we've got a farmer from nearly every sector in Victoria, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've got some that do orchard. We've got dairy farmers. We've got me who do, does veggies. Uh, we've got um, some beef farmers there. So 
and also nuts and things like that. So if you're a little bit interested in any of those sort of things, have a look at the website and there's a heap of links and free information there so that you can take first steps basically to become involved if you wish. But if not, you can see what we do. Um, just a quick plug for my friend John Moore, who you mentioned. Mm. His site is uh, World Organic News. If you search for that in Google. Yes, John, John and I did a bit of a podcast uh, a while back now. Yeah, I think it was a few weeks ago and uh, it'll still be there. And it was a great interview too. Yeah. Mark, I'm just moving on talking about uh, how important preparation of the soil is to biodynamics. It, it kind of links into a, a concept that we at uh, Climactic have come across called the circular economy, where there aims to be more return to the soil and re- reduction in waste. Would you agree with that? Can biodynamics show the way in that concept? Well, it's probably not be dared to say that only, but it's one of the main reasons biodynamics or the main philosophies biodynamics has that we wanted to be a closed unit system whereby farmers could create their own fertility on the farm Mm. Uh, from their own, from their own things that they have around them, like manure and hay and seed. Yep. So we're probably the best method from a philosophical standpoint to do that. Although there are some organic farmers, some permaculturists, regeneration, regenerative farmers that do similar things to us. So I can't say that we're the only ones, but from a philosophical standpoint, that's where we come from. Yep. We wanted, we wanted to be able to farm without bringing elements from right across the other side of the, of the land or overseas. Yes. We didn't want to bring in, you know, fertilisers or chemicals or, or additives to our, our soil. It's really a closed unit system. And the great thing about it is we're taking carbon out of the atmosphere yep. and from the sunlight and sticking it in our root systems and then our microbes are basically breaking that down to create fertility. So it's the simplest system on Earth. It's the way nature's done it for millions of years. But we're just accelerating it a little bit by adding our microbes to the system. Okay. And recycling and reuse in biodynamics is a big thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's the only thing because we we basically create the cover crops on the farm. Uh, They inject their root systems into the soil and then we dig all that leaf matter from the top in as well and then we just add our microbes. Um, So there's nothing that comes on the farm to produce that fertility. And then when we grow our, like I grow broccoli and and collies and things like that. Now, all those residues get disked back in the soil and we add our microbes to that and they go about breaking them down again. So it's total recycling. You couldn't get a more recycling uh, program. Just bringing back to an ordinary household, farming, but just an ordinary household, can you practice biodynamics in a small backyard? Yes, you can. Um, we do have, we have sort of, we used to have two organisations where we had the, the home gardeners and then the professional farmers. Yep. But we've sort of brought them together a bit more now. But on the Biosoil website, we've got some links there. And if you're interested as a, a backyard farmer, we can put you in touch with the people who, who sort of specialise in that. And you can uh, become involved. You, ha- you have to do a bit of study and a bit of – you can't just sort of buy 500 willy-nilly. But mm. if you're interested and you read all the, the necessary material and you become involved, then we're, we're willing to – if there's 500 left over from the professional farmers, then the backyarders can get some of theirs too. Okay. Mm. Uh, are there support networks for 
biodynamic farmers, uh, gardeners? Yes, correct. Yeah, there is. We have okay. a, a little club and meetings. You can get together and meet other farmers, learn from their experience in it. We also have things like field days in, on farms and also meetings, and people even have open days with their backyards and things like that. So, I'm just wondering too, is um, biodynamics, we, we, when we talk about climate change, one of the things that gets mentioned quite often are the extreme climate events, the floods, the fires, etc. And we can see that in a changing climate, that that's going to be the future. With so much interest and concentration on topsoil and re- repairing and keeping topsoil, does, does this help in any way to prevent or at least mitigate against uh, these extreme climate events? Oh, for sure. Um, partly from what I've said in the past with taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil, if the carbon's balanced up above us, then perhaps we won't get those weather events in the first place. Um, mm. But also with your biology they and your fungis, they add a lot of glues and things to the soil which holds it all together. And if you're growing crops in them all the time and the, and the microbes are there, then you're pretty, your soil's pretty much got to stay in the same spot. So you're going to mitigate against, you know, erosion and things like yeah, that. So yep. we find also too with the microbes, they tend to be able to create great structure in the soils, lots of holes and pathways with worms and things. So what happens is when we do get a flooding rain, most of it will go in the soil. It won't be okay. right off the top. So yep. that actually prevents floods because instead of the water hitting the soil and running into your rivers, it's held up in the soil at depth because, as I mentioned before, we had four foot of topsoil. If you can imagine a four-foot sponge versus a four-inch sponge, how quickly that mm. would fill up. So. Yes. If you do get a rain event that's large, then your four-inch sponge ain't going to hold much and it's going to run into the stream and cause flooding down downstream, whether it be in a city or something like that. But with biodynamics, it hold, it's held up and then runs through the soil at a slow pace, maybe to your river, but you know, at a later date, not to flood it at the time of the, down, uh, the downpour. It sounds a lot like old schools, doesn't it? Old farming schools, uh, just common sense. Would, would that be correct? Yeah, exactly. And um, mm. it's the understanding of that too. Our farmers are taught uh, all these methods and what they do and the benefits of them and, you know, all the techniques. And once you understand that, you can, if something does happen, you can make changes fairly quickly. So it's good to have that knowledge under your belt. Thanks very much, Mark. This has been a fascinating discussion. I'll just leave a few minutes for you to add anything that you'd like to say and any links, uh, anything that I haven't covered that you would like to tell the listeners on biodynamics. Uh, the All the things that I mentioned today are to do with the Australian Demeter biodynamic method. Mm-hmm. There's lots of biodynamics out there. <clears throat> um, we pride ourselves on being a professional organization most of our farmers are running successful businesses and uh the kinds of people uh that are in our organization are on the biosoil.net.au website so when you do look up um, biodynamics there are organizations other than our own internationally and, and and locally and all the methods that we do are on the Biosoil website. So you may have come across things that are very unusual and things that are a bit strange. We mm-hmm. we try to only do those things that are are practical. So um, I want you, if you want to see what we do, 
go to the Biosol website. So I just wanted to make that clarification because everybody has their own spin on things. Every A lot of people have brought things into Biodynamics that was really Rudolf Steiners, the guy who started Biodynamics or conceived it in 1924. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to make that clarification that if you want to see what we do, we have a website to do that. So, And just to add that we'll have that link in the show notes. Mm. Mark, that's been an amazing discussion. I've learned a lot. Thank you very much for taking your time. And we've had a few internet problems, but we've got through them. Uh, Thank you very much again. No problems. Thanks for having me. Okay, back to Mark's interview. What did you get most out of it? It was really the demystification of biodynamics. That was really great for me. Biodynamics Mm. to a city dweller and until recently, just a bog standard consumer. It was just a, a tagline to me that just seemed to, there was the organics phase and there's all of a sudden biodynamics on, say, yeah. you know, meat packaging or anything in the supermarket. I, yep. I honestly, I didn't know what it was or what it meant to be biodynamic, but it was really good to have that explanation because I now realize that biodynamic farming is just the application of a bit of biology and longer-term thinking, and that's just applied to old-fashioned farming. Good. Yeah, yeah. Soil health, yeah, that isn't something that consumers like me have been exposed to or or thought about. I'd say that's probably since the majority of us stopped being farmers and just became consumers, that we've stopped thinking about Mm. the soil, which is the ultimate root of where all of our produce, all of our our meat comes from. Uh, But it it makes absolute sense, doesn't it, to to focus first on the soil and kind of treat everything else around the the maintenance and health of that soil as kind of like a side product. Totally agree, Mark. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. I was doing the interview it's an interesting perspective mate thank you now mark to our special segment the listeners and i are dying to hear more about the university challenge competition that you've been working so hard over the last few weeks to organize can you tell us how everything's going well has it only been a few weeks honestly i can't remember a time before this started (laughs) honestly it's going better than i could have expected rich i'd never organized an event before uh, I'd never asked for sponsorships from companies. I'd never asked for people's time in such a big way. Mm. So it's been mm. a lot of firsts doing this. But um, I found I've really enjoyed it, You know, doing this for a good cause. Uh, judges are lining up. Sponsors have been very, very generous. And now the biggest challenge remaining is just do a good job of explaining it to the yes. pool of potential applicants. So that's every single student at the University of Melbourne and making sure we do a good job getting everyone exposed to it so they've got the chance to enter. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot right <laughs> oh, no. here, Mark. Can you have a crack now at giving us the brief summary of what the competition is all about? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a try. I'll pretend I'm on an elevator. <laughs> um, so it's a storytelling <laughs> contest. Yeah, we're asking students to distill some of what they're learning at uni into an easy-to-understand and compelling little story. The only requirement is that it has to be about the effects of climate change on the public. And whether that's an mm. effect we're feeling right now or one that's coming down the track. Okay, that's pretty good. Now, what about the primary goals for the comp? Well, simple, really. You know, very modest goals. I want to help discover the next David Attenborough. All right, right. No pressure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's my mark of success. <laughs> Luckily, that will take decades to find out whether that's been successful or not. So, but I think mm-hmm. shows like Planet Earth that, you know, and, and David Attenborough is such a synonymous, like, household name. If we all, if you, I just say David Attenborough, and you can close your eyes and you can hear that voice describing mm, a lemur mm. or something. Yes. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, his work has been such a powerful tool for encouraging a sense of responsibility for the planet. And we need more great communicators like that. And 
And that's what we're hoping to do to encourage that next generation. Excellent work, Mark. Look, this really does sound astonishing. And I hear you've attracted some quality judges for the competition as well. Yeah, we, we absolutely have. We're, we're still waiting on some to confirm, so I won't be throwing mm-hmm. out any names or mm-hmm. anything here yet. But I can say we've already gone on board some of the, the brightest minds from the University of Melbourne yep. faculty. So professors have been there for years and years and decades. And I think it's kind of a cool thing for the faculty to have a chance to see the students go yeah. above and beyond and do something yes. extracurricular. We'll have some great people from the social enterprise yep. space. And we'll have some some great leaders from environmental groups as well. And I guarantee these are groups people have heard of at home. And I know you've had some great help on the project and you'd like to thank them. So go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I absolutely have had some great help. And this would not be happening without them. Uh, Suganth, the secretary of the GAFS group at the University of Melbourne, yes. it's the Graduate Agricultural and Food Society. Well, he was the, the primary instigator of this. So if it all falls apart, I'm blaming oh, him. Oh, it's handy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but his early encouragement and ideas, you know, not only for the competition, yes. but, but of Climactic itself has really been vital. Manga, my co-star in some of our yes. videos, I, I kind of pulled him behind the camera. And he's, he's better for it. And I think I've turned him into a bit of a Facebook Live <laughs> fanatic. Yeah. Maybe. He's the, also the president of GAFS and he's been a great sport and such a great asset okay. to us as well. Yeah. And, and last but definitely not least, Anissa, who handles the, the social media for the group. Mm-hmm. She's been doing so much hard work behind the scenes to make sure everyone on the campus knows about the competition. Yeah. And I can't wait to report back on success of our efforts. And, uh, and hey, the winner will have their own episode of Climactic dedicated to them. So you'll all get to hear about the competition as well. Oh, look, I can't wait. Okay, it's been a huge episode, as they say in the cliche classics. I hope you love listening <laughs> to it as much as we had in making it. Now it's time for some credits. Yes, thanks to Caleb Fidicaro, our intrepid producer once again, who right now is elbows deep in our Google Drive, sort of making some sense out of our uh, lack of organizational style. Thank you so much for all your work, mate. Um, Good luck. (laughs) Abby, our intrepid designer, thank you so much for all your work. I know a couple of people have contacted me this week asking for Abby's details, so I'll be following up with her and then with them to see if she's got some work out of it, because uh, she absolutely deserves it. Check her out at abigailhawkins.com. And to the former Melbourneian, now turned Sydney cider, they still love you, Greg, it's okay, our amazing <laughs> composer, Greg Grassi. Check we him call out. him Refugee. <laughs> <laughs> Check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud. That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S. And I'd like to thank Mark Rathbone, uh, not just for taking the time for the interview, but also for being so patient with the internet connection interruptions. We had a few, uh, but we got through it. Thank you very much, Mark. Also to my friend John Moore at World Organic News for organising the interview. That's great work, John. Thank you as well. Thank you so much for listening, folks, and have a great week. You'll be happy to hear that in the recording of this episode, your hosts have both been wearing clothes. Phew, what a relief. But we both have no idea where our clothes come from, other than a country of origin on the label. As to how they are made, we have even less of a clue. And honestly, now that we both think about it, that bugs us. Why don't we know more about the garments we buy and wear? Easy answer is, it's because it's difficult. But that's why we're privileged to be able to tell you about a group doing that hard work for us and opening the doors to how clothes are and should be made. Fibershed Melbourne is part of the Fibershed Network that promotes a soil-to-soil view of the textile industry. They're running an amazing festival from the 20th of August 
called the Festival of Natural Dyes, where, as you'd expect, you can learn about all the ways nature can provide us with the dyes we need for the clothes we love. The festival has something for everyone, and we warmly invite you to check it out at fond.org.au. That's www.fond.org.au. Thanks. The Climactic Collective.